This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we take a look at some of the articles within the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Nara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. Today we'll be asking whether Russia might turn off Germany's gas. We'll also be looking at what relations are like between Prince Charles and Boris Johnson. And finally, we'll be talking about sex parties. First up, I'm now joined by Wolfgang Munchau. Wolfgang, in the magazine this week, you look at what might happen if Russia were to cut off gas supplies to Germany. At this point, how likely does that seem as a prospect? That's a good question. I, it's, it's a, I would consider this as a, a higher chance than people expect. It's still not my main scenario. So I wouldn't think this is like an 80% thing because, A, we don't know what Putin, what Putin is thinking. And he, you know, he may, after all, need the money. This is, I mean, the idea of him cutting Germany off would cost him a lot of money. And he has generally not used gas quite to that, you know, extent. And his sort of reputation, if you want to call it, you know, Putin having a reputation, his reputation is that of a real, oh, he has, is casting himself as a reliable supplier of gas. So there are arguments for him not to do that. However, there are very strong arguments for him to do it which is that Germany's already said they want to get, like everyone else, they want to get rid of Russian gas eventually. They just can't do this in the, in the next year. It will take them you know, several years. They don't have alternative suppliers. The Qatari wanted, you know, there were conversations with the Qatari, but they can't provide any gas in the short term. There's a news out today that Britain would cut off gas supplies to, to the Netherlands and Belgium should there be some kind of disruption in the system. So we have to basically see that this will be that Germany doesn't have alternative sources available if Russia were to cut off the gas. And that puts him in a very, very strong position. So if he wanted to really damage Germany, and this is not really about people freezing in the in, in the winter. This is really about damaging the German economy, damaging German companies that are reliant on gas. Because under the German gas emergency plan, what will happen is that the companies will get cut off first. So there may be, you know, I think they'll keep they'll keep the, the, the steel furnaces running and maybe the chemical companies because they're processed. You can't switch off a chemical company so easily. But an awful lot of other companies will have to basically shut down production. This would be, will cost, this could have huge economic costs on Germany. And the German economics minister, Robert Habeck, he even invoked a Lehman Brothers style contagious crisis because what could happen is that if, if the Russians stop delivering gas, various gas buyers in Germany might just go bankrupt. And there could be sort of a knock-on effect on other gas companies and other energy companies in Germany that would, as a result, also have to fall into bankruptcy. And this would be sort of a contagious a contagious crisis, similar to a financial crisis, but this time in the energy market. So there are a number of reasons to think that this is a potentially strong strategic weapon that Putin could unleash possibly his strongest weapon that he has in, in you know, his, his military campaign is going better now than it did in March, but it's not going great. He's not making huge and fast progress. This is still a, a, a bit of a war of attrition. I think his strategy is to 
to weaken the cohesion of the of the Western alliance, and he has identified Germany clearly Germany as the, as the, as the weakest spot in the Western alliance, and I think that is that's probably right. How did Germany end up in a position where its economy is so reliant on Russian gas, and, and was that a mistake? This is a long story. It started off in the early 2000s with Gerhard Schröder forging a personal friendship with Putin. At the time, it wasn't really about gas. When Schröder left uh, politics in 2005, within weeks he took a job at Putin's Gazprom uh, company, and uh, Schröder then became in charge of the Nord Stream uh, project, Nord Stream 1 and later Nord Stream 2 projects. These are the giant pipelines that run through the Baltic Sea from from Russia to, to Germany. And Angela Merkel supported that. And the reason why everybody supported that is that, is that industry wanted it to happen, because industry is saying, we, you know, in order for us to, to produce cars and all the other sort of you know, things that Germany produced, Germany is still a heavy industrialized economy, what would need to happen is that there needs to be a reliable, cheap supply of gas. And that was sort of the main source of energy. Also, the Germans wanted to get out of nuclear power. This was another thing. And because they wanted to get out of nuclear power, they had figured out that they couldn't do it with coal because coal is, because of the CO2 emissions, they had signed up to Paris, the Paris Climate Accords. So they wanted to get out of nuclear. They had to get out of coal. So the only thing that was left was gas. And that's why they figured Russia would be the best source of gas And until... You know, recently, Russia was also the most reliable partner. They would never cut you off. And, uh, you know, when, 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 when Putin did things like you know, poisoning former agents in the UK, the Germans looked the other way. They said they were outraged and they were also outraged about what happened to Navalny. But they never linked this to their own gas thing. They always treated this as a separate thing. This was a business. This was a business contract. And that strategy unraveled when Putin invaded Ukraine. They could not, no longer maintain it. They wanted to maintain this. In the beginning, you may recall, the Germans said they, they, they didn't want to sanction gas. They didn't want to impose too many sanctions. They didn't want to sanction the, 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 the Russian banks because the whole idea was to keep, to keep the gas flowing. That was basically the, the thing. They never thought it could happen that Putin would, would, would isolate himself so much that he would have no choice, but that they would have that they would come under so much pressure to sanction him, which is exactly what happened now. What is happening now? And and at this point, what alternatives does Germany have to Russian gas? Well, there isn't there isn't much. I mean, I'm hearing suggestions that they might, you know, they have their their their, their gas capacity is between fifty and sixty percent at the moment. Their tanks are filled, so if we have an exceptionally mild winter, and people save an awful lot of gas they might just get through. There are various scenarios, they've drawn up various scenarios. They could buy gas on the open market, there is a limited capacity. Americans have agreed to to supply extra gas. But this is a very large country. Germany is about a third of the size of the US in terms of population. So this is a, you know, this is this is a, you know, if 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 your main supplier of of your main energy source is, is 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 gone, uh, you know, you're not going to fix this in a, in a month or two. This is a big, a big problem. They'll fix it. They'll definitely fix it. There'll be also all sorts of other alternative energies will be developed. Renewable energies will will grow in size and importance over the time. I would have thought the natural thing to do would be to keep the nuclear power stations running for a while longer. 
but that is not the policy of the German government. They might do this if pushed, you know, if, if things if if things got really bad before you know people start, you know, dying in their homes because it's cold. They would probably do that, but it's not something that they plan to do. They might also go back to coal. There's another suggestion that they might just keep keep you know commission new coal-fired power stations, as much as they hate it and as much as this is a violation of their own targets. They would have to clearly postpone some of their their their, their emissions targets. So they have they have alternatives, but these alternatives are, are costly and politically costly, and it's not it's not really what they want to do. And what have the political ramifications been so far? What, what does this all mean for Olaf Scholz? I mean, Scholz is, is really not having a good time. He is a, a politician who got into this job rather by accident. Uh, you know, I don't want to draw any comparisons with the UK. You know, nobody had thought that he would become chancellor, but it was his opponents, both of them uh, at, at the last election, self-destructed, and he was the, the last candidate standing. And but people are now seeing what they got. He's a, you know he didn't provide leadership. He seems to be having you know his own agendas. You know he says he wants to deliver weapons to Ukraine, and then his office blocks weapons deliveries and doesn't explain why he does. So now they are delivering weapons, but there, there are still many many questions asked. You know he doesn't answer questions in interviews. He comes across as very arrogant. And, and his popularity ratings and that of his party have, have collapsed. So the political ramifications of this is that, you know, that, that here is a, a coalition which is, uh, you know, I'm not predicting its breakup because, because coalitions have in general a, a, an interest, all partners have an interest for this to continue to the bitter end. There's usually first mover disadvantage if somebody pulls out, it usually works against the person who pulls out. But one has to sort of recognize that the Greens are benefiting from this because they've been the only party in Germany that was against Nord Stream 2, against all the Russian, the, the Russian business, whereas all the other parties were you know, pro-Russian, basically, for the entire period. Now, the Greens had their reasons to be. It's, not, it's nothing to do with Russia itself. It's to do with they were against gas and other fossil fuels, and they didn't like any contracts with anybody that would secure long-term fossil fuel deliveries, and they were very much opposed to pipelines. Um, so the Greens are benefiting from this because they were the only ones, they were in the right spot. They have a reasonable uh, people in the government, both Annalena Baerbock, the foreign minister, and Robert Habeck, the economics minister, who's basically in charge of this, this whole thing. They're the most popular ministers in the government. Um, so, so, you know, they, they would benefit if there were new elections, Scholz is dropping in the popularity scale. So this coalition stumbles on and uh, between now and 2025, you know, things will change. This is not like it will not it will not continue as a way. There will be new stuff. We, we may no longer talk, be talking about the pandemic or the war. There will be other things we will talk about, and maybe Scholz recovers uh, as a politician. Uh, Stranger things have happened, but I think at the moment it looks very much like when you're asking about the political ramifications, saying this is very very good for the Greens, and there is a possibility that the Greens might actually no longer be sort of the junior partner in the coalition, as has been the case in the past, but they actually might be running running the government next time and that Robert Habeck maybe could become the next German Chancellor. And just finally, Wolfgang, you say in your piece that the big question is whether Germany's solidarity with Ukraine can indeed survive a cold winter. Do you think it can? I think it can because it's very hard for Germany now to, to go back on, on, on its policy and to support Putin. 
there are always a group, and this is interesting if you go into German TV talk shows, there's always somebody, you know, usually a, prof usually a professor of politics, who makes the case for Putin. So there is, and the population is not sort of as united as, as it is, for example, in the UK. I would say that there's an overwhelming support in the UK for Ukraine. And there are not many people who say, you know, I, I'm, I'm with Putin here. And certainly not uh, in public, and certainly not, you know, certainly not here on, on the Spectator. So you, you're not going to find many in the UK. In Germany, you'll find them. There's not a majority. I'd say it's about a, you know, a, 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 a strong minority of people who think that they should not support Ukraine, who believe Putin's story that Ukraine is not a state, which is basically what Putin is saying that it should be part of Russia. You know, I have German friends. Normally, very reasonable people, but who say exactly that—that that 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 Ukraine should, you know, is is really part of Russia. They've basically been 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 buying that story for a you know forever, basically, and 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 seeing the world very much through Putin's through Putin's eyes. So so one should not underestimate this. It's not a majority, but you know, if a third of your population thinks that you're not you you, you act with a different with with different constraints than if you if you are like in the UK or in the United States where there is an unquestionable, broad, cross-party support in favour of the action the government is taking. Well, thank you very much, Wolfgang, for joining us. And to talk about those Germans who are fairly pro-Putin in their views, I'm now joined by Katja Hoyer. Katja, as Wolfgang just mentioned, obviously not all of Germany is against Putin, and, and this is something that you look at in your piece this week. Um, where does that support come from, in, particularly in East Germany? Well, it surprised quite a lot of people that there is so much support for Putin in, in East Germany, because when you think about the history, it's actually not dissimilar to the rest of Eastern Europe, where you see quite you know strong antipathy towards Putin. So when you look at the response of Poland and the Baltic states and so on and so forth, um, who were all part of the Eastern Bloc, um, they're actually quite hostile and quite robust in their, in their approach, whilst East Germans seem to have more sympathy for Putin than a West Germans and B Eastern uh, Europeans, and I think that's partially due to the to the difference in history. So the the way that um, the other Eastern European nations were treated because they were were sort of seen as as Russia's sort of natural sphere of influence, if you will. So they had their their textbooks rewritten, their their language changed, and so on and so forth. And that just didn't happen for East Germany. Yes, there was political influence of Russia onto East Germany, but they were allowed to keep their the, the German national colours as their flag, um, a very kind of German specific uniform to the to the point where it sort of almost disturbingly looked like the Wehrmacht uniform, the the uniform of the, the National People's Army. Um, so in many ways, I don't think East Germans felt as kind of threatened or uh, dominated by Russia as, as other uh, Eastern European nations did. And and you say that today lots of East Germans find it hard to see Russia as the enemy. What what has been the response from East Germans to Putin's invasion of Ukraine? Well, sort of being from East Germany myself, we learned Russian at school. It was kind of a, a language and a culture that you were quite familiar with. You read sort of Russian literature and, you know, had Russian pen pals and all of that. So Russia becomes a very... A familiar country with uh, personal connections. There's also a very kind of large Russian enclave in East Germany as well, or Russian Russian sort of speaking communities in East Germany who've settled there. And so, in that regard, I think it's uh, harder for for East Germans to see Russia as kind of an enemy figure because you'll think of the people that you know, of the culture that you 
immersed yourself in. Whilst in West Germany, you know, Russia was the enemy for much, much longer. And, and in that respect, kind of less of a of a personal, um, there's less of a personal connection there. And you talk in your piece about the anti-NATO sentiment that exists in East Germany. You mentioned it does exist in West Germany too. And you talk about Olaf Scholz, who, who did used to have quite strong anti-NATO views and obviously has, has now shifted on that. What do East Germans make of the fact that their chancellor has has changed his views so much when it comes to NATO? Well, I think it's it's kind of a more general left wing thing, I suppose. And given that you know East Germany was socialist, it was the entire country in that respect. But with Scholz is a good example of that, whereby this kind of idea that that NATO is is not a defensive. Uh, formation, but an aggressive, or as Schultz phrased it in his kind of youthful socialist days, uh, an imperialist even undertaking. That idea, I think, was quite sort of widespread um, in in West German political, kind of in the left wing circles, as well as um, in East Germany. And therefore, when you kind of grow up with this kind of sentiment and you grow into that, it's quite difficult to now switch over completely. I don't think East Germans have got a particular view on on sort of Olaf Scholz having sh- changed his opinion. It's quite well known that within the Social Democratic Party in Germany, which um, he's a member of, the youth organisation, they're actually called the Young Socialists, they tend to sort of be more left-leaning than the, the sort of adult equivalent. So once people grow out of that, um, it's, it's kind of quite a, a well-known fact, I think, that people become more... Um, moderate in their views and I think Schultz is an example of that. And I've just been talking to Wolfgang about the possibility of Russia turning off the gas to Germany. In in East Germany how do they feel about that? Because as you say in your piece obviously lots of the region would take a big economic hit were that to happen. That's right I mean people tend to talk about Germany as a whole and its dependency on gas and that is definitely the case but when you think geographically where those pipelines actually go to, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, the Druzhba pipeline, which is the largest oil pipeline in the world, they all end in East Germany. Um, and therefore, there are not only a lot of jobs that depend on them, and, and that, in, in the case of Nord Stream 2, have now directly been been lost and jeopardised by this. When you know Nord Stream 1, as well, if, if capacity is reduced, that's going to have a knock-on effect on kind of jobs in the economy in the region, those people in turn, once they lose their jobs or lose their income, will stop spending money in the region. So there's genuine uh, kind of anxiety, I think, beyond kind of what it means for, for not being able to, to heat homes. On top of that, there's there's very real economic deprivation, I think, ahead in those regions where people are directly affected by those job losses. And just finally, you say in your piece that Schultz should try to bring Eastern Germans along with him. How How do you see him doing that? It's difficult, so I, you know I won't say that as a kind of easy easy solution there. But I think what people need to stop doing is to sort of almost say that that these Germans are lost to 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 the debate around this completely and just try and ignore them because at the end of the day there are still a lot of them. There are 16 million, 16 million East Germans, so it's quite a significant part of the if the minority, but quite a significant part of the of the German population, and so. I think just uh, kind of involving people in dialogue, asking what it is that can be done to support them. So say, for example, there might be a way to 
to deal with the economic impact that this is going to have specifically on a regional level, perhaps by extra funding or, or supplying extra support. Um, and just in general, I think carrying on with involving people in dialogue, what, what is it that they need? What is it that can be done to, uh, to bring them on board, as opposed to just kind of putting the blinkers down and, and going, well, they're only East Germans, that's what they're like, so we're just going to have to ignore them. Next, what are relations like between the Prime Minister and the future king. I'm joined by James Heal, our diary editor, and Camilla Tomini from The Telegraph. James, for this week's magazine, you write about the tension between Boris Johnson and Prince Charles. Of course, we recently saw them clash over their views on the government's Rwandan migrant policy. But how far back do these disagreements go? Well, really, I think the first time they had proper sustained contact was at City Hall. And that was uh, 14, 15 years ago. And I think it's recorded that uh, Boris turned up to their first meeting more than half an hour late because he'd accidentally got on the wrong tube going the wrong way and been mobbed by a group of uh, middle-aged Chinese women. And in City Hall, Boris was much more pro-development than Charles was. There were a couple of things in which they agreed, but there were public clashes as recorded and detailed in the Evening Standard. And then since then, there's been a number of issues as well. Obviously, Charles has not felt much compunction in sharing his views on a number of public policy over the past couple of decades. And so there are some positions he's taken which naturally clash with Boris Johnson and some of his ministers over that time. Camilla, is this something that you've noticed? Well, I think, to be fair, sometimes the Prince of Wales can be a divisive figure among ministers because there's this sense that he interferes too much. His so-called meddling memos written in his very characteristic scrawled handwriting have been the stuff of legend in the past. And there's a difficulty for Clarence House there because obviously we've been used to seven decades of unwavering impartiality from the Queen. And the Prince of Wales, as the longest serving heir apparent in history, hasn't spent all that time saying nothing, but actually saying quite a lot. So how do you put that genie back in the bottle? And I think from Boris Johnson's perspective, it's difficult, isn't it, when you've got royals quoted in the paper, having questioned legitimacy and indeed the morality of an immigration policy. That is tricky, not least when quite a few people will be agreeing with Charles rather than Boris about Rwanda. James, in terms of um, in terms of policy, it seems like there are actually a few points of agreement between Boris and Charles. I mean, not least of all, they both have they both talk a lot about green issues and, and the environment. Would it be too much to reduce to reduce the clash between them to to a simple difference of personalities? I think so. I think we've got to also bear in perspective here that, you know, Prince Charles wasn't coming out in these decades and saying, well, I disagree with Clause 7 of the Labour Party's manifesto or disagreeing with specific points of economic or fiscal policy. It's more broader themes which he's been able to allude upon. So in the environment, obviously, we all want the environment to be conserved. I think that's a pretty uncontroversial cross-party agreement. So, of course, he has a lot of opinions on that. And Boris has been a very, maybe perhaps recent, but enthusiastic convert to things like COP26, where they've worked well on. It's about broader things, really. And I think there is a personal element. I write in the magazine this week about some of uh, Prince Charles' friends and allies uh, who have come up against the wrong uh, side of Boris Johnson. Like, you know, Nicholas Soames, his great friend and confidant, had the whip taken off him by, by Boris. And so it's a mi- mixture of policy, but it's not, not too in the weeds. But some of the broad themes, I think you can see some general disagreement as well as the uh, personal element I allude to as well. Camilla, one of the points that James makes in his piece is that perhaps part of the reason for the clash is that Obviously, Charles is the actual heir to the throne, and Boris obviously said years ago that he wanted to be world king. 
Do you think that's part of the reason that they both have these sort of great power ambitions? Well, possibly. Um, I think Boris Johnson's a very competitive person. I also think that his devotion to the Queen is unwavering because, of course, as a scholar of Churchill, he's got huge respect for the Queen being a woman of the wartime generation and extremely close to the former Prime Minister, as was George VI. So there was that story about a lack of respect being shown at Balmoral and that the Prime Minister turned up completely ill-prepared and harassed and not really focused on the weekend in hand. Perhaps there's a sense that Charles feels that Boris hasn't given him the respect that he's given HM. Yeah, and I just add on that point, I think that it's the difference perhaps within the crown as an institution and as an individual. I, I completely agree. Everyone I speak to says that the Boris has the utmost respect for uh, the Queen, Her Majesty. The difference is, of course, is that Boris is perhaps maybe a bit more um, comfortable with not playing by every establishment nicety necessarily. You contrast with Boris's attitude with, say, previous prime ministers who were complete monarchists in their approach and respected the, the crown and gave... You look at the new Labour prime ministers who obviously indulged Charles's black spider memos, which Camilla previously mentioned and also like for instance Gordon Brown was um, was reverential in his devotion to the monarchy whereas I think um, Boris is sometimes a bit more irreverent in approach to constitutional norms as much as he has the greatest respect for the queen herself. Well yes I mean you say at the end of your piece James that the the relationship between a monarch and the premier is sacrosanct that has, has quite strong as strong constitutional boundaries but if Boris is still prime minister when we we get a, a, a King Charles III, which of course is by no means guaranteed, but if that if that does happen, they're obviously going to have to to, to work much more closely together. I mean, do you worry that this is a this is a preview of things to come that isn't wholly encouraging? Well, of course, as the Prime Minister told us the other day, he's going to be PM until the 2030s. So uh, it's a very, very, very real prospect. I think the, the difficulty is is that you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so Charles has taken a number of positions and, and done certain things because he's been in the public eye for so long. So that's one element of it. I just think it's I think that the monarchy has a very established position in British society and I don't see any great constitutional clash necessarily, but it just means a long-running tit-for-tat thing where you get these occasional flare-ups, which could erode the monarchy's standing and bring it into lots into some kind of disrepute, which I think long long term would be probably more damaging to the individuals and the institution itself. Camilla, just finally, it's it's been reported recently that the Duchess of Cornwall and Carrie Johnson have become close friends. Do you think that could help smooth over relations between? Prince Charles and Boris? Well, I don't, close friends might be pushing it. Charles Brandreth famously said that when it comes to the royals, one must never confuse friendliness for friendship. And yes, I think there can be a bridging of the gap with prime ministerial wives. Uh, we know that famously Cherry Blair didn't particularly get on with the royals and certainly didn't in, enjoy strolling through the heather up in Balmoral when she was with Tony Blair and Tony Blair was invited there for the weekend. There will be a sense, I would imagine, that Camilla might have taken Carrie under her wing in a sort of motherly stroke grandmotherly sense because Carrie's got two very young children. And to be fair to Charles and Camilla, they do like young children and to play with them because they're grandparents themselves. I don't know whether that smooths things over at all. You'd imagine, actually, that Camilla and Boris might get on pretty well because they both share a quite dry sense of humour and enjoy the finer things in life. But I think moving forward in terms of any future relationship, it is always going to be difficult for Prince Charles as king to even begin to try and replicate his mother's relationship with so many different characters, prime ministerial and presidential and otherwise. And... Actually, weirdly, there is more that unites Boris Johnson and Prince Charles than divides them. 
they had very similar schoolings. They had a very similar mentor, as James has pointed out in that piece. They've also had the same controversy in their private lives because of extra marital affairs. And they are both quite polarising figures. So they understand what it's like to be on the receiving end of bad press as well as good. You would imagine that that would create some kind of bromance between them rather than the opposite. Thank you, James and Camilla. And finally, sex parties. I write about them this week in my column for the magazine, and I'm joined by Emma Sale and James Innesmith to discuss. Emma, you are the CEO of Killing Kittens, which is something that I mentioned in my piece. For listeners who aren't familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit about your business and what it involves? So what started as an event business is now, well, on paper, a sex tech business, an adult social network dating site that also does events. And I talk about you in reference to sex parties. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that you do host sex parties? Yeah, parties where there is sex. <laughs> tell us about them. them. Tell us, parties. tell listeners who don't know about them, what, what do they involve? So we do them all sorts of venues from sort of licensed bar club type venues through to private houses all over the world, really. And they're always masked, like cocktail dress. We do loads of different entertainment, DJs, like cabaret acts, burlesque performers. And then, so you can stay in line to sort of the party bit, or you can kind of wander off into, there's always got, there's always playrooms, whether there's sort of dungeon playrooms with sort of dominatrixes or house kind of dungeon masters that with all the equipment. And then there's other big, big rooms, which might have eight beds or four beds all together, where you can do whatever you want. <laughs> James, I think I'm right in saying that you've been to a sex party because you've written about it. What, what was your experience? Yes, well, I do remember the room with all the beds in, actually. It wasn't one of ours, was it? It was one of yours. It was one. We were trying to work out earlier. It was one of yours. Um, I did get invited to a private one at someone's house, which was probably one of the most depressing (laughs) hours of my life. But yours was was very interesting. And I do remember that upstairs room with lots of beds Mm. and quite a lot of embarrassment from some of the people who were invited I think there was a lot of English kind of what do we do now do we leap on each other or yeah. do we just kindly say hello to each other so it was all a bit it was all shaking a bit, hands yeah exactly <laughs> uh, I suppose the masks certainly helped with that but once they came off I noticed there was a lot of nervous eye movement <laughs> and what, what sorts of people go to these parties because I suppose the premise for my piece is that I, I keep hearing about different types of these parties normally from people who are kind of quite professional and and I guess sort of you know I mentioned people I know in civil service and doctors and is that the kind of usual type of person you go to these parties? Do you know what there isn't there isn't a type it's really weird there's no sort of set industry they come from no set religion or background or I mean totally diverse setup I I just always say the majority of people have they have the same headspace they have the same kind of hedonistic mindset of that you've got one life and you've got to get out there and enjoy it and try new things and experience so to me that's what connects everyone that comes it's not sort of an industry or necessarily a slight ab demographic because actually the price point prices out a lot of people even though you know 180 pounds a couple isn't exactly isn't huge nowadays so complete mix and now you know now we get actually we get a lot of sort of younger girls in their 20s who come along in big groups because they just want to have a good fun night out and dance around in their underwear without being jumped so it has evolved I think from when you came it's sort of now we're taking over the ministry of sound and with 800 people and actually it's much more of a sort of a club immersive experience where actually if you want to wander off into the side rooms you can or you can just stay and party and dance and yeah I was actually quite surprised when I went there was a I met a very I was kind of there for research Mm. but 
honest. Sure. <laughs> and uh, and sure. um, I met a very sweet couple. They were in their 20s and they'd only been married less than a year. Mm. But they, I said, isn't it a bit weird coming to a sex party when you've been married for so long? They're like, no, no, God, no. We, we just want to experiment. Our sex life has gone a bit quiet of late and it's just a really good opportunity to liven things up. And I just thought it was amazing for someone yeah, so their, young and so their mindsets a, now yeah. are it's just sex. That's the thing. It's sort of I think when I was in you know mid forties now, so twenty years ago, sex was like well it's attached with the emotion and also the kind of society, especially as a woman of the shame and the guilt and that side. Whereas now it's they're able to go it's just sex. We're just animals. So actually you can be completely in love with someone. And, you know, I say, you know, you can, you can bring a sex toy into your relationship, you can bring another penis into your relationship. It's like there's no emotional attachment to it. Do you think it. it's possible to, to completely detach oneself? From, yeah. yeah, and I've seen it. We've been doing it 17 years, and actually some of the closest couples I know have been members for years, and they're so in love and so yeah. secure, and they literally just see it as exploring together and having fun together. And, so that old cliche of yeah. women have a much more emotional connection mm. to sex and there's a sort of bonding that happens once they've done the act would you say that that's not really the case or I think it is possible to it, is, it is possible i think each their own i think different i do know that the you know there is a misconception about desire and actually because also with that when you look at society of who normally does the cheating and and losing interest you'd immediately go it's the man but actually women's desire drops much faster than men in that's an animal thing so but on that scientifically we should be the ones who lose interest quicker and want to go out and try and i think they move things. on quicker yeah we well, move on quicker myself. but that is the like the science of sex is the is is the one science in the world where actually what happens in real life goes completely against yeah. the science of yeah. sex it's extraordinary and the cliche of and what the, yeah. we expect of men and women is yeah. totally opposite. Exactly. Yeah. one of the things i also mentioned in the piece is that i've sort of picked up various parts of the rules and the etiquette that kind of go with some of these parties, whether it be the safeguarding measures or some of the dress codes. What what are the rules and sort of dress codes at Killing Kittens? So the rules, we're, we're very female-led and always have been. So the women sort of are the ones who make the first move. We don't let single men in on their own. Every guy that's in there is accompanied by a female member. So to come to the event, you have to be a member of the Kittens Association, which is women identifying and then you can bring guests so we're very skewed on that side and dress code you know it's cocktail dress black tie if you if you're a man and you come with a partner but no woman makes a move on you do you get your money back no (laughs) (laughs) why not but do you know it's funny because i've pretty much we've never had any complaints but presumably that happens i mean yeah i mean it it might and the thing is it's not you know those are the rules but obviously if you're standing at the bar and you just get all chatting there isn't kind of as kind of you you do as long as you're polite and it's it's more the consent and the respect and the boundaries that yeah, yeah, yeah. if you were standing at a bar, you could sort of yeah. start chatting slightly, but it's not in that kind of hey. Yeah, no one's going to no one's going to run <laughs> um, in and go. Yeah. You can't speak to them. No, exactly. <laughs> and James, one of the arguments that I make is that I I get the sense that certainly for sort of some of the people who are perhaps going to these parties more recently, one of the draws of it is that it then gives them something to talk about later on. Is that fair? Do you think? Do you think people like, even though I mean, they're meant to be kind of private? Do you think people actually do like talking about them afterwards? Well, funny enough, the person I took, who was actually my agent's assistant at the time, <laughs> she was the only person I could find who would come with me. She was very, very young. She was only in her early twenties. But she, I do remember after the event the next day, she rang up, kind of quite sort of distressed because she felt that she hadn't really gone far enough. She hadn't mm. really been bold enough. 
And she's like, we should really go again and do this properly because <laughs> For you know, the, the evening yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the evening went by and not that much had really happened. So I think she felt, not she didn't feel shortchanged necessarily, but she thought that she could have been a bit more, a bit mm. braver. But she certainly wasn't bragging about it. And I don't mm. think I necessarily would have either. But maybe people in their 20s just think, well, you know, it's, it's just an ordinary thing now. It's just yeah. something they do. It's yeah. definitely changed. That, I mean, we've noticed a massive difference. And I said, when, you know, when we first launched, it was much more couples. Now, actually, you know, with a party of 300 people, 100 of them will be single girls now. Um, and the groups of girls in their 20s coming along and it's just sort of the difference in them compared to my lot in their 20s is, is huge um, and it's just the norm really and it's sort of one day they sleep with a guy the next day they sleep with a woman it's just sort of they don't have the same I wonder how long-term relationships deal with that I mean people who are in long-term relationships I wonder how much it affects that because mm. if you've you know, open relationships mm. are all very well on paper but that fantasy sometimes is better kept yeah, <laughs> I think it's more the, more the singles that, that of that sort of in their twenties of just getting out there and exploring, and even and we have a, a mix, so you get that, but then you also get a lot of women in their late twenty, late thirties, forties who mm. are, had the kids, who are divorced, and they go, sod it, now it's our turn to get out there, and we've maybe they settled and just sort of felt it well, nothing was on their terms, and everything's about the kids, everything's about the husband, and something they go, no, okay. <laughs> it's time to be selfish and actually go out and explore and work out what we like sexually and so we do get we get the different groups I did different notice phases. That, sorry the, the, I, I noticed that the the, the the women were far more forward I think than the men who seemed much more retiring and mm. like I say embarrassed by <laughs> and um, have you noticed post-covid with all the lockdowns that there's been a kind of boom in people wanting to go yeah. to these parties just to kind of yeah huge get out there. Um, we're sold out till October and we're doing double the amount of events and also kind of quadruple capacity so pre-covid our big events would have 250 people and now we're taking over the ministry of sound with 900 people and selling out so we're doing where we'd have one party on a friday night we're now doing a back-to-back double header of a friday and a saturday so which we kind of we knew would happen as soon as covid hits i was just like i know where this is going to end because you only have to look back through through history to know what happens after pandemics and wars so and and this week <laughs> earlier this week it was announced that the treasury now has a stake in killing kittens and actually yesterday rishi was saying quote gordon brown might have had boom and bust it turns out i've got bums and bust how's that been <laughs> having a well it, well this week's been crazy with the media finding out <laughs> that they've got a stake so I actually said last Monday, because we're closing, they've raised a million pounds, it closes this week. And I said last Monday, I give it till Friday before someone has sniffed it out. And sure enough, Friday, we had a call from the Financial Times. <laughs> we know what's going on. Like, Here it goes, <laughs> get ready. <laughs> so it's, do you know what? It, at the end of the day, we're a business that we couldn't get a lot of the C-bills and balance about loans and things because we're a high growth tech business. So 2019, when we were growing and building the platform, we weren't in profit because everything's going on the tech build. So we couldn't get any basically of the financial help which was just it's just a sort of prehistoric very rigid banking system of computer says no so that's it so when the future fund came up it was like well actually we tick all the boxes we'd raise the money we everything else so let's just go for it um and yeah and actually we did exactly we're actually the pin-up for the future fund because we've done exactly what the future fund was meant to do unlike a lot of the ones that applied for it have now gone into administration. It's sort of, we did it, they, we've now a year later raised the money, they get their sort of 30% discount on it. So actually, you know, they, we've got 170 grand from, from the future fund, but their share, and they've got 1.7%, but their shares are now worth 270 grand. So 
So, Here's a yeah, question I know <laughs> you're going to answer honestly. Have <laughs> any members of the cabinet been to any of you? No. No. No, no, I I'm still not lying. <laughs> I'm not lying, but how many members of the cabinet are in the closet? Twelve? <laughs> <laughs> Who wouldn't be interested in our parties, so... Um, do you do gay ones? No. No. Is that, that something you ask me if we, if we launch that, then ask <laughs> then me the same question. <laughs> <laughs> and can I ask you both for listeners who might be interested in attending a party, what your advice is for kind of novices? James, why don't you answer first? I, I, I would uh, put away your preconceptions, I suppose, and just, if you're feeling it, go for it. If you're not, don't force yourself, I mm. think it's would be my advice yeah completely there is the, there are preconceived ideas of like if you're going to it then there's the assumption of the minute you walk in the door you've got to take your clothes off you've got to get naked you've got to have sex and and actually it's nothing like that and you can just go keep your clothes on and have a fun party and I would say if it's your first time just say that to it go right let's keep our clothes on let's go and have a drink and you can and I know that you can always walk out at any point you're not being chained in there the doors don't get locked behind you so it's an expensive drink. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. One, one glass of fizz for 180 quid. You're welcome. <laughs> well, Emma and James, thank you very much for joining. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you'd like to read more about what we've discussed, just pick up this week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And do join us again next week. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.